Hello, my name is Peter. Our reading today comes from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 to 16. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except for their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Hi everyone, I'm Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC and adding my welcome to Kyra's, wherever you're connecting with us from, I'm very glad that you are. Today is hopefully our last online only service. How good is that? Next week, many of us will meet in person for the first time in many months. It will be a moment of great celebration at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. So please consider being there and bringing kids along to the Sunday school that will run at the 9.30 service. Now, if you're not able to join us for whatever reason, a live stream will still be available via the link that is on our website or you'll get if you're subscribed to our YouTube channel. But along with our celebration, it is also a time of uncertainty and ongoing concern. One thing we are all more conscious of as a result of lockdown is that no human knows what tomorrow holds, let alone next week. We make plans and we do our part, but the outcome is not dependent on us. And so we prayerfully hope in God. Please keep praying for your brothers and sisters at WBC and around the world as we move back towards meeting together. We have had God's word read for us already. And as always, we need God's enabling to both understand and apply it. So let's pray to that end. Almighty God, we thank you so much for the opportunity that you have given to us yet again to stop and to reflect on your word. Thank you for giving us uh, the letter of Corinthians that enables us to understand your will for our lives. As we take this time out to think about it and consider it, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you'd work in us, enabling us not only to understand what's written there, 
but that you would work in us so that we live it out to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Plot twists are so common these days that they rarely surprise us. They're a common technique used in books, in plays and in movies. Jane Austen's classic in which Mr Darcy ends up being a hero. Some of Shakespeare's plays. The movies Arlington Road, The Sixth Sense and A Beautiful Mind. But the plot twist that I still remember most clearly was when my dad took me to the movies for the release of The Empire Strikes Back might be considered a bit cliche now, but hearing Darth Vader tell Luke that he was his father, I have to admit that I was stunned. How could the baddest bad guy be the father of the hero? I just didn't see it coming. Now, they may not be as famous as the book or movie plot twists, but real life has got some great plot twists as well. This is Juan Pujol Garcia a Spaniard who lived during World War II and applied to the British Secret Service to become a spy for them. The Brits rejected him, so Juan became a spy for the Nazis instead, eventually being awarded the Iron Cross by Hitler for his efforts. Amazingly, despite his initial rejection by the English, Juan acted as a double agent the whole time. He ended up having a key role in Operation Fortitude, which misled the Nazis about the timing and location of the invasion of Normandy. For his efforts, he was made a member of the Order of the British Empire. As far as I know, the only person in World War II to receive top military awards from both sides. Often in hindsight, we can see clues that should have given the surprise away. But plot twists work because at the time, all of the information makes us believe that things are heading in a very different direction. As we come to the end of chapter two, we find Paul writing to the Corinthians about God's plot twist. But it's not included to entertain an audience by surprising them. Somehow, understanding the surprising plan of God will contribute to fixing the problems at Corinth. So today, in the words that Paul himself uses, we're going to think about what is God's mystery that we have come to understand? What is God's mystery that we have come to understand? Last week, Mark helpfully led us through Paul's self-reflection on his ministry at Corinth. When Paul and the team were there, they were fully aware of the expectations of what was considered important and desirable. And yet, when Paul had come to Corinth, Christ crucified was all that he knew. He refused to adjust his message, even though he knew that it contradicted what both Jews and Greeks considered acceptable. He wasn't interested in manipulating people through the use of persuasive techniques. His unchanging message was that Jesus had been crucified in our place. In his efforts to undermine those who had gained influence in Corinth, Paul dismissed wisdom. But in a stunning plot twist, Paul explains how God, in his wisdom, had always planned to save the world through this apparent foolishness. He calls it a mystery, which as he's using the term means something that was hidden in the past that has now been revealed. What is the mystery that he's talking to? Well, that those who trust in their own wisdom, verse 6, will come to nothing. Whereas those who receive God's wisdom will obtain glory, verse 7. The outcomes are certain. 
And yet the twist is that when you come to the fork in the road and must choose which path to take, the rulers of this age make the wrong choice. Those that people look to and take advice from, those who appear to be going places or perhaps have even arrived, evaluate Jesus and conclude that he is unable to give us what we need. And it was precisely because they came to this conclusion that they crucified him. Though Jesus had told them who he was, they refused to believe it. Ironically, if they had realised that Jesus was who he claimed to be, they never would have gone through with crucifying him. Verse 8. But God outplayed those considered to be the top of the game. Verses 6 to 9 are really just further reflection on what Paul has already stated. It clarifies that Paul is not actually opposed to wisdom. He's just opposed to worldly wisdom that sets itself up in opposition to God. In verse 10, he goes on to explain more of the how this works. Verse 10, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit, which is our second point. How do we come to understand God's mystery? The answer is by God enabling us to. Not only is salvation achieved by God, but the only way that we can understand it is if God works supernaturally in us. Left to our own devices, we will always come to the wrong conclusion. God must work in us to give us the insight we need, which reverses what many would consider to be the logical process. Many assume that we hear the gospel, we realise that it is the way to be saved. And then after we have put our trust in Jesus, God takes up residence in our lives and begins his work in us. But Paul insists that God the Holy Spirit must be at work in us first if we are going to evaluate Jesus' death in our place correctly. Which means that the right response to the gospel does not depend on the eloquence of the presenter or on the mood in the room. It isn't effective because events in our life have prepared the way. It is not about technique. The only thing that gets us over the line is if the Holy Spirit enables us to understand the purpose of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, we need to be very careful at this point to appreciate the nuances of what Paul is arguing. He is not saying that the way that the gospel is presented is irrelevant. We know from many other passages that Paul observed and thought very carefully about how best to present the gospel to different people in different situations. He worked harder than anyone at persuading people. He is the one, as he says later in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, that attempted to be all things to all people so that I might save some. So this is clearly not an excuse to be thoughtless in how we share the gospel. But neither is he suggesting that events in people's lives have no impact on their openness to the gospel or otherwise. Paul often shared his own story as evidence that our upbringing and prior experiences have a huge impact on our perception of Jesus. And yet, if the Holy Spirit does not enable us to correctly understand who Jesus is and what he has done, we will without exception conclude that Jesus' death is unnecessary will assume that there is another way, that, that we can make some kind of contribution, that we don't need Jesus. The single crucial factor in every conversion that has ever taken place 
every single conversion that will ever take place is that the Holy Spirit has opened spiritually blind eyes. If you have trusted in Jesus' death in your place, it indicates that the Holy Spirit had already been at work in you before you even made that decision. Now, Paul goes on to argue that this shouldn't surprise us. Have a look at verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, it's an argument that we all know from experience is true. We can think of times when we have acted one way, but thought another. From outward appearances, people might assume that we liked the movie, enjoyed the meal that they cooked, or that they appreciated the gift that we gave them. If all that we say is positive, others may doubt our words, but they can never know with 100% certainty if we are just being polite or if we really mean what we say. Now, sure, sometimes our facial expression may give us away. The fact that they don't wear the shirt that we bought them is a very big hint that they don't really like it, despite their words insisting that they do. But in the end, the only person who truly knows what they are really thinking is the person themselves. There is no way that we can know what someone else is thinking unless they reveal the truth to us. And so it is with God's truth. We can only know God's thoughts because God reveals them to us. Which means that if you have understood that Jesus' crucifixion is the only thing that saves you, that means that God the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you. If you get the mystery, it means that the Holy Spirit has enabled you to get it. If you don't get it, it reveals that you are still evaluating Jesus from a merely worldly perspective. Now, Paul's going to go on to draw out some of the implications of the Corinthians' misunderstanding of this truth. And, and so when we meet in person next week, Rod is going to lead us through chapter 3 and apply this to leaders and followers in the church. But it's worth reflecting now on what this means for how we perceive others and how we perceive ourselves. The first thing we need to notice is that the gospel is for all people, without exception. If we think that someone can't receive the gospel because they're too hardened, too bad, too stubborn, from the wrong background, from the wrong language or culture or socioeconomic status, then we underestimate God. The gospel changes people because God uses it to change people, which insists that your relative or workmate or neighbour who has rejected your sharing of the gospel can change. The aggressive atheist on TV, the, the arrogant social media poster, or the person committed to another religion is not beyond the reach of the gospel. I've just finished listening to a book called Defying Jihad. God called a woman to himself who had signed up to be a suicide bomber. She lived in a country, in a family, with an upbringing that from all perspectives should have made it impossible for her to become a Christian. God brought her to himself anyway. Do we really believe that God specialises in the impossible? Does this truth drive us to our knees, begging him to work in the heart of unbelievers? Does it mean that we financially and prayerfully support Christians taking the gospel to Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus? And 
that we also invest the time needed into secular atheists in Wollongong. If we truly believe that God miraculously saves people through the gospel, we will share it with everyone. Whereas I think often in practice, we tend to put some people in the too hard category. We assume that they won't listen, that they're not interested, that they will always keep on rejecting Jesus. It takes God the Holy Spirit to reveal to us our sinfulness and the effectiveness of Jesus' death to save. And he can do that same miracle in anyone. You may not have the gift of evangelism, may not even feel confident in sharing your faith. You may have been knocked back a thousand times, but the gospel doesn't change people because you are good at sharing it. It saves because it is the mysterious power of God. The effectiveness of evangelism depends upon God. If we think that a particular speaker or a particular presentation, certain words or the music that's playing in the background is what makes a particular gospel presentation work, then we are clearly mistaken. This truth should make us bold in proclaiming the gospel and dependent upon God. It should mean that we are involved in and supportive of the gospel going to Australia and the world, knowing that many will stubbornly reject it. And yet God will enable some to acknowledge their need for Jesus. We can have great confidence that as the gospel worked in the past, so in God's wisdom, it will continue to draw people into his family. It is rightly called good news for all. And if you are listening and haven't realised this before, then clearly the message is that now is the time to recognise your need for Jesus. Call out to him. He awaits for you with open arms. But I'm quite sure that most people who are listening have already trusted in Jesus. And the truth that Paul explains here in Corinthians should put our focus on those, both near and far, who haven't yet. But this truth also has implications directly for how we think about ourselves. It's fascinating that Paul talks about God's plot twist to people who had already known about it for some time. Paul is not explaining the gospel to people who hadn't heard it before. The Corinthians are not like me, watching the empire strikes back for the first time. That Jesus died as the means to obtain our forgiveness was not supposed to be an aha moment for the Christians at Corinth. It had already been that back when Paul and the others were still there at Corinth. Which means that Paul's motivation in writing this way is not to surprise or to entertain, but to remind. Paul is taking them back to the origin of their place in God's family. If we are in the family of God, it is because the Holy Spirit has miraculously opened our blind eyes, enabling us to see the truth about Jesus' crucifixion. We have been enabled to realise that it was not defeat, but victory. Christ crucified is the sole way that sinful creatures can be reunited to their holy creator. But God didn't reveal this to us because we are somehow better than others or more insightful or because God knows that we will show more gratitude in time. He graciously chose people who didn't deserve to be in his family. This is the truth about every single one of us. That's why chapter one finished as it did. God chose to save this way, partly to ensure that nobody can boast. And so if we start thinking of ourselves as better than others, 
on what possible basis could that be true? That Jesus died for any of us is the great equaliser. That he did it equally for you and for me levels the playing field completely. So don't think of yourself more highly than others. If you have a position of leadership or special abilities, insights into the Bible, they were given to you as a gift to use for the benefit of others. Your relationships and experiences and finances are for his glory, not for your own. You're not better, you're just different. But I think just as problematic is to think of yourself as inferior to others. If God has not given you a position of leadership, has not given you certain special abilities or the same insights as others, then don't think that it reflects badly on you or somehow makes you less than others. God has made you different and given you different roles and abilities for a reason. Whatever we have is his gift to us to be used for the building up of all. So be grateful for whatever gift it is. Don't compare yourself with others. Be grateful for what you have received and for what God has chosen to give to others. Use your gift to his glory and celebrate others using their gift. God's plot twist corrects some of the world's most persistent misunderstandings. While many things in life do demand our effort and persistence, being right with God does not depend upon us. God both achieves it and enables us to receive it. While our acceptance by others regularly depends on our talent or what we've achieved, those things are irrelevant to God's acceptance of us. The world values education and status and wealth and beauty, and God considers them all irrelevant to the value of a person. God's mystery is that the things that the world values and chases after and assumes are the source of our security are all a dead end. The only thing that we need is what has been provided by Jesus' death on the cross. May the Holy Spirit drive this truth deeper into our hearts and enable us to live it out in how we evaluate others and evaluate ourselves. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are an incredibly gracious God, that you choose people that the world sees as nothing, that you provide wisdom in the place where it's least looked for, Thank you so much for sending Jesus to die in our place, sending your Holy Spirit into us so that we would be enabled to understand that. Please keep doing that work of enabling us to understand this more fully and basing our lives on it so that we understand ourselves correctly and interact with others in a way that's appropriate with that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.